Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. And if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, please leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785. That's 201-472-0785, or go to askbillnye.com on your electric internet machine. I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings and salutations, Bill. Uh, Bill, you know, there are a lot of fun ways that people try to communicate science. I hope this show is one of them. But one of my personal favorites is the comic XKCD. Used to be, actually, you still see old yellowed far side cartoons all over scientists' office doors. And these days, you see XKCD strips all over their Twitter feeds. It's, it's cool. It's why I'm so excited that we're joined here today by the creator of those letters, XKCD, Randall Monroe. Ah, uh, yes. Mr. Monroe, greetings, Randall. Welcome to the show, man. It's great to see you. No, thank you for having me. We'll start with this. The full title of your most recent book, it's How to Absurd Scientific Advice for Common Real World Problems. It starts with this quote, this is a book of bad ideas. Now, why did you think it was a good idea to do a book full of bad ideas? Well, I didn't start out trying to come up with bad ideas, but I feel like I, I'm always coming up with bad ideas when I'm just trying to come up with ideas in general. And the tricky thing with ideas is you don't know which ones are good and which ones are bad at first. Sometimes an idea that seems really like obviously bad turns out to be really good, and then sometimes vice versa. And I find that the process of like taking an idea and exploring it to see how it would go wrong if you tried it, or maybe surprisingly, like how it would go more right than you think um, can be really fun and can teach you a lot. Uh, taking it to its logical conclusion. That's your business, right? That's your whole point of view. Yeah, exactly. And it, it always, it takes you in some really interesting directions. Um, I had a, a friend who had ants getting into his house and he texted me once while I was just walking down the street and he was like, hey, this is your kind of thing. I, I want to know, can I get a lava moat? 
around my house. I've tried everything else to keep the ants out, but we're surrounded by forest and they just keep getting in. And I think a lava moat could do it, but a can lava I build that? moat, molten rock yeah. encircling mm-hmm. your residence. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and it, maybe it has some practical benefits, but also it sort of fits that like budding supervillain aesthetic you might be going for in your home design uh, landscaping. I can understand the appeal. Well, and so when I hear that, my first thought is like, okay, that's a terrible idea, which I mean, is certainly true. But what I was thinking was, well, that's got to be just unaffordably expensive, right? Because if you want to make lava, lava requires lots of heat and heat takes a source of energy and energy is expensive. And but then I stop and I'm like, I don't know, is it unaffordable? How much would it cost? to try to keep that much lava hot. And and we're talking about ants. We're trying to keep <laughs> right. ants so at like bay. If, you don't need an especially big <laughs> moat. Just well, a couple but ant when they, when, There's that phase where you've got the flying ones flying around. So maybe you ah, need the updrafts from a large run. hot lava pool to sweep them away. But what I like is like, for me, um, what's really appealing about this kind of thing, and it's the same thing that appeals to me about, about answering weird science questions, um, is that like once I get the, once I get a good question like that, like, could you afford to keep a lava motor around your Hang house? Hang on a second. Once I get yeah. a good question like that, I want to put a lava moat around my house to keep away ants. Okay. Well, a question that has a clear answer, but I can't immediately figure out what it is. But to me, it's like uh, it's like getting a song stuck in your head where you you have a question and you're like, I think I could answer that. I think I know how to figure it out, but I'm not sure. Um, it's like, I'll drop anything I'm doing and just like, okay, well, wait, maybe if I Google this paper, maybe if I find this thing, okay, I've got to get a, do a calculation. So I actually, when my friend texted me about this, I stopped, I remember I was just walking down the sidewalk and, and I stopped and I'm like, well, okay, how much heat does lava really put out? And um, how much heat you know, does I it don't take? Know. What's the thermal capacity of lava rock? Tephra. Yeah, exactly. Although that's that's sort of your initial cost. Like this is going to cost a lot to set up. But then what I what I was thinking was you're going to need to keep this moat 24 seven. Otherwise, what good is it doing you? And so I figured the ongoing costs were going to be the uh, were going to be the problem. So what if you live in a, in a volcanically active place? What if you this guy decides this is so important to him he's going to go to Hawaii or 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 or, or New Zealand? Yeah, or what have you? Well, and that seems like it would save uh, save your costs if you build your house right next to an active lava flow. Um, but then, I think the cost of rebuilding your house every so often when the uh, when the volcano the flow got a little bit too high and suddenly covered your house mm-hmm. uh, might end up costing you more. Well, don't leave us in suspense. Walk us through the rest of your process. What what's the answer? Is it how much energy does it take for having an well, so <laughs> lava? Well, so I was surprised. You know, it it. it I looked up, you know, they do infrared surveys of lava flows, and there are all these models showing how much heat they put out. And so I could take, figure out a rough estimate of the heat of a moat that's X feet or X meters wide, and then uh, ask my friend how big his property is. And, you know, it depends on exactly how wide you want the moat to be and how big your house is. But in general, the number was sort of in the five figures per day. Now, that's definitely outside of my or five my friend's figures price of what? range. Um, like, like, I think like twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars mm-hmm. a day. Yes, per day. And when I saw that, that sort of surprised me because on one hand, it's certainly, you know, outside my or my friend's price range. But it's also sort of less than I expected. 
like that's an amount of money that there are quite a few people out there who could afford to spend that much a day on a lava mode and not even notice it. So if there if there are any budding supervillains out there, this might this is sort of surprisingly affordable. I really expected it to be more astronomical. So how wide was if I decide to go this route, uh, how wide was the proposed moat? Well, I think you want it to be more than a meter or so wide. Um, and I actually talked to some volcanologists about this and confirmed you really that, that if you get a running start. You don't want to sit next to a meter wide lava moat because the heat coming off of it is going oh, to uh, uh, roast you. Yeah. But if you get a running start, I think, uh, you know, someone, a marauder or someone trying to get over your moat, a person with a running start, if they're wearing, you know, heavy protective clothes, could jump over a one meter lava moat and spend <laughs> brief enough time near it that they would, uh, you know, escape without without being singed. So I think you want it to be at least a couple of meters wide. Uh, but we're trying to keep away ants. Right. Yeah. Well. So, as with many of these things, my my uh, the original question that prompted it just sort of fell by the wayside as I started to think. Okay. Well, why would you want to build a lava moat? Are there any other reasons I can think of that I'd need a lava moat? Because now I've spent all this time designing one. So Who how do you how do you uh, contain a lava moat? Do you have is there insulation or just use you let layers of uh, a layer of rock cool? on the on the uh, the walls of your the conduit the gutter of the moat yeah yeah the the real challenge is isn't so much um containing it and keeping it from melting other things it's keeping it from solidifying so the challenge is what kind of heating elements do you have um to keep the lava hot in the in the moat you know hot enough that like you could do a lava moat that was like 600 degrees celsius and it would there are plenty of molten materials you could have there, but it wouldn't really glow that satisfying yellow color. Mm -hmm. It would work fine for keeping people out, but I feel like it doesn't really count as a lava moat if it's not kind of that red now, orange. What now? What kind of depth? What kind of depth do you need for the ants, or will just the heat take care of that? I mean, I think that the ants probably just like will just see the lava moat. You know, be like, well, in that direction, there's lava. We're going to go bother this other house over here. So maybe it's sort of a deterrent. You do have to look out, though, because there are a couple of species uh, uh, of um, these these uh, uh, lava crickets, which are these little invertebrates that, uh, you know, insect-like uh, creatures that that live in lava tubes in Hawaii and, and a few other places like that, where um, – and there some of them, there isn't very much known about them because – the environments they inhabit are so hard to like safely explore and observe them in that uh, there just isn't a ton of research. So uh, one of the most popular science guy episodes was about volcanoes. And uh, I ran through lava tubes and they occur when uh, there's a lava flow and the roof of the flow cools off. And so then, mm -hmm. then it drains away, leaving a hollow space, a cave. So when you have a lava moat to keep the ants away, is there... How do you work with the, the roof of the lava moat cooling off? You, you want to maintain that orange glow is what you were saying, right? Yeah, exactly. And so the, <laughs> the real challenge there is to get enough heat coming up through the bottom 
and like insulate it around it so the heat is gonna only be able to really escape through the top so um and that'll keep it hot but it but that that's what takes such a big input of power and you have to have the heating system able to survive the the high temperatures <laughs> and so there are systems they use in forges in in, in um smelting factories to to make to keep these big open cauldrons of of molten metal up at temperatures in the thousands of degrees and you could adapt one of those as much as i'm loving the lava moat in the book of bad ideas are there bad ideas that end up being good ideas yeah well at one point someone um i had one chapter where i i was thinking about common problems that i've had that are really frustrating and i did a chapter on how to move and i figured moving is a huge pain no one likes moving and packing up all your stuff is especially you know just tedious and it's a huge amount of physical work and mental work and and i thought you know it's instead of putting all my stuff in boxes, my house is already kind of a box. Could I just pick up the house and move it? And I know people move houses sometimes, you know, there are those trucks that they put them on. And so I started thinking, yeah. And, but then there's, then it turns out there are all these permits you have to get, and you have to like get a permit for each jurisdiction you drive through and you have to, and then I was thinking, what about like, and what if you live next to a bridge, you have to go under the bridge the, you know? So then I started thinking, could you lift a house into the air? Or like the movie. And so oh. I was looking at. Yeah, exactly. That exactly. Like a good idea. So I was thinking, what you know, could I just go and and borrow a helicopter from someone? But I was looking and I discovered that the biggest heavy lift helicopters in the world aren't don't have the capacity. They're like they have like half the lifting capacity of the kind of house that I grew up, to lift the kind of house I grew up in. But then I then I'm thinking, okay, well that won't work, except if if the helicopter has half the lifting capacity I need, then all I need are two helicopters. Sure. What could go so wrong? I, and I was thinking, well, you know, you could take two or three helicopters, maybe a third one for safety, and have them all lift the house, like each one pulling in kind of different directions uh, so that they aren't colliding with each other. And, and then I was thinking, well, how do you keep the helicopters from colliding where, while well, they're all on the end of strings that are all attached to your house? Uh, and I thought, oh, well, you know, there's no reason to have them moving independently. You could just connect the helicopters up with some kind of like a rigid frame. So they're all like locked together into a single mega helicopter. Well, what exactly. you need yeah, is a yeah. quadcopter of you just enormous, have some rebar or two by four connecting your helicopters. <laughs> exactly, and I thought, well, why not just take an existing big heavy lift helicopter, get another two or three or four of them, and and make a giant quadcopter? And I was surprised to discover not only am I not the first person to have this idea, but in the in the seventies, uh, a helicopter manufacturer actually produced a, a design study for the Navy on what they called the multi-helicopter heavy lift system. And their idea was just take two existing helicopters, cut the tail off of one of them, join the nose up to the other one, and then you've got a helicopter with double the capacity. And and it's there's this you can read this 150-page very serious report laying out all of the technical problems and and feasibility well, of the this Chinook, idea. The sh- there was another one, I don't know if this qualifies as a good idea, but it was another case where I was really surprised that this idea worked better than I than I would have thought. Um, someone, I, I was, I did a chapter that was uh, uh, how to deliver a package from space. Like, if you're in the space station, you want to send down, you know, you want to return your order from some online re- retailer, and you forgot to send it before you got into the spaceship. And then NASA's sick of ferrying your Zappos returns back down for you, <laughs> so you're like, well, I'm, I'm looking down at, the, you know, North America right now where their receiving facility is. Can I just kind of? push it out the window, give it a, give it a good throw. Um, and I was thinking, well, of course you can't do that because any, <laughs> any package or letter that you threw out of the space station would burn up on reentry. And that's mostly true, but 
it turns out that if you have something that's very kind of thin and flat, like something in a, in a manila envelope, if it can survive up to just a couple hundred degrees Fahrenheit, like sort of typical like baking paper temperatures, it looks like there are some calculations that suggest that as it enters the atmosphere, it'll slow down up high where the air is thin enough and won't ever really reach those super high burning up temperatures. It'll just kind of come to a rest and then gently drift down. And so, so, there, so it doesn't need a parachute or anything. It's just it's sort of, it's drag limited. Yeah. It's only for things that are really thin, really thin and lightweight. Um, and this led to another proposal, uh, which again, sadly, uh, uh, they didn't go through with, but it was a proposal by some Japanese researchers to take a bunch of paper airplanes up to the International Space Station and then, and then chuck them out and let them uh, enter the atmosphere. And in, in theory, according to all these calculations, they should survive the trip down. Uh, How cool would, would that find be? Them, How could we have not funded that? I know, that? right? Kind of it seems like a very low-budget experiment yeah. also. Although it, does, it also seems like the sort of thing where even if it's not funded, they probably got some paper up there, right? <laughs> you know, you could just sort of sneak out a, 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 pay, a, sneak out a couple of pages of the emergency manual on your spacewalk. We're talking about these crazy things from space, but you also talk about the NASA sky crane, which honestly, if you did not know it was a real thing, you would think that was a classic absurd bad yeah, idea. Yeah, I love this, the the way that they landed the rover on Mars. I always That's one of my favorite examples of an idea that it sounded ridiculous, even to the people who were working on it. Um, you know, they came up with it and it's like, well, this this sounds this sounds ridiculous, but it we can't think of any better idea, and we also can't find a specific problem with this one. Um, the way to get the rover, except the complexity. Yeah, exactly. But but then then all of the <laughs> ideas that seem better turn out to be more complex uh, and have more unsolvable problems. Do you, you want to explain the NASA sky crane for those who aren't already familiar? Sure, sure. The well, the general problem was getting they when NASA wanted to land the Curiosity rover on Mars, they have landed other rovers by surrounding them with airbags. So they'll have a parachute that slows them down partway, but Mars's atmosphere is really thin. So to slow them down at the very end, they'll inflate these airbags that they bounce, let them bounce and roll and come to a stop. But the Curiosity rover was much bigger than uh, any of the other rovers that the US has sent. And the uh, problem was they found that the parachutes couldn't be big enough to slow it down enough in Mars's thin atmosphere for the airbags to be able to absorb the impact. And so what they had to do instead, they were thinking, we have to figure out a way to slow it down more than the airbags and parachutes can slow it down. So they thought, okay, well, can we do some kind of, use a rocket to, to make it land itself? And they found that the auto land system, um, if you put a rocket on the bottom of the rover, as it gets near the ground, it'll start kicking up dust and the dust will interfere with its ability to see the ground and to orient itself. Um, and that would interfere with its ability to land. And so they tried a bunch of other sensible sounding things, you know, bigger airbags, bigger parachutes, et cetera. But eventually someone came up with this idea that they called the sky crane, which was to dangle the robot from a hovering vehicle that would hover high up on rockets, high up enough that it wouldn't uh, kick up any dust. And then it would lower the robot on a winch, like on a cr downward toward the ground, just dangling there. And then when it made contact with the ground, the sky crane would cut itself free. Uh, it, the robot would detach, you know, the rover would detach from the sky crane and the sky crane right. could, it, could fly it's a, off. It sounds kind of insane. Yeah, I mean, it worked so well. Um, and I really liked how NASA, when they, you know, they talked about this, they kind of played that up um, 
the fact that no one has ever done this before and the fact that it did sound kind of ridiculous. Um, because so often with space stuff, everyone, you know, is trying so hard to look, you know, make sure that they seem everything, everyone understands they're doing their best. They're very serious, you know, very competent. It can make it seem sort of routine. And I really enjoy when they kind of acknowledge like, this is a really wild thing we're attempting here. Stick around for more science rules after this. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Science Rules is back. Randall, it's so much fun. It's so easy to go down a rabbit hole where you just, okay, what if this adds to this? We're going to have a lava moat for the ants. Okay, when do you stop? When you go down rabbit holes from absurd questions, where do you draw the line? And when you draw the line, you draw the line with stick figures for crying out loud. So go ahead. <laughs> where do you stop? How do you know yeah. when you've reached the logical conclusion? Is it when oh, boy, everybody that, dies, that. which is popular with you? <laughs> yeah, knowing when to stop is the real trick. Uh, a lot of the time, it's when I realize it's three in the morning and I've been reading about currents in the Earth's outer core and I need to wake up at eight <laughs> the next day. And, oh, no, I have to go to sleep. Um but yeah, knowing where to cut your losses on exploring these rabbit holes is always is always tricky. I sometimes I'll you know if I go down a some rabbit hole and I'm like, well, I'm not really finding questions that have satisfying answers or that have you know seem like they have a lot of interesting mystery to them. Sometimes I'll back up, but then usually in the course of like exploring down that avenue, I found three or four other you know, potential rabbit holes, potential avenues to to go down. I mean, like we I could spend we could spend a whole day just looking into what ways do we have of observing the Earth's outer core and figuring out, okay, that guy said it's unknowable. Is it really? You know, there's got to be a way we can figure it out. The Earth's magnetic field fluctuates because of changes in the in the outer core. So what do we learn from that? You know, can we, that could go on forever. And, you know, any process will like turn up like five or 10 of those. And you sort of have to have, have some kind of a goal in mind. Like, I'm going to come back out of this with a, the coolest thing I found and show that off. And so I try to sort of do that. Now, Randall, I, ha I have to interject. This is oh. a call-in show, and you're talking about the possibility of calculating and getting answers. We have a question here that I think will be ripe for that kind of a process. Hi, Bill Nye. I'm wondering, what is the perfect radius to be away from Yellowstone when it blows? How far away do I need to be to live? So this would be the... There's the super volcano under Yellowstone National Park. The heat 
of the earth creates the phreatic, uh, steam-driven, uh, old faithful geyser. The Yellowstone supervolcano is, is such a such a fun thing. I always love when people are like, "What do you mean the Yellowstone supervolcano?" And then it's really exciting because you get to, to introduce someone new to this idea that there's this giant volcano uh, under Wyoming that hasn't erupted in in several hundred thousand years, but could erupt at any time in theory. Um, probably won't, but but if it does, I think I would worry less about being close to it and more about being downwind from it. Like if you get within a certain distance, that's bad because there's a shock wave and you know it's gonna blast stuff out in all directions. But then when we've had these these volcanoes erupt, um, first that you know there's the initial like right nearby, there's a, a massive outflowing in all directions. But then as the kind of column of steam and ash and, and, and stuff rises up, it gets carried by the winds. And so you'll have ash deposited. All the stuff that blew up out of the ground gets deposited downwind. And so it could be that for a thousand miles, if the wind, so the wind, uh, you know, if it's coming from the west, then a thousand miles to the east, there could be huge layers of ash laid down, you know, burying houses and, and covering fields and stuff. So this one is the kind of question that producers love to spring on guests. Hey, Bill and Corey, I actually have a twofer for you guys. So first of all, I wanted to know, if you fart in a vacuum, can it make a sound? And then the second part of that question would be, if I'm drowning underwater and I fart, can I breathe that fart in for more air? Thank you. All right, Randall, this sounds like uh, your kind of thing. Uh, no, I would say not really and no, respectively. Um, so see, here's what he did. See, everybody, he's got the idea and now you're going to your your intuition about what would happen. And now you're going to pursue it from a science standpoint. Take it. <laughs> well, so the, the first question about, you know, if you fart in a vacuum, it, can it make a sound? And so the sound is when you have a gas a pressure wave uh, moving through it. And so if there's a vacuum, there's nothing to carry the pressure wave. Um, so then there's no sound. But, but, but you could hear the vibration traveling through your own body. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think that counts because, because you can do that anywhere. Yeah, you, I mean, you, you would hear it in that sense. What I was thinking was the moment you fart, it's not a vacuum anymore. Because you're expelling right, you gas, put into gas into that space. So then yeah. you filled the space with gas, and then the sec if you fart a second time, have you filled the space <laughs> that one with makes gas? A sound. Are you no, outside I mean, if it's, of if the it's space a vacuum? Shoot? Yeah, if it's a vacuum, it's going to expand pretty fast. That's so you'll I mean. have a window there where you've got a cloud around you. Uh, oh, I don't think you so. You could conceivably I think, transmit no, a sound I think through at, that. At human body yeah. temperatures, these molecules are going to leave you at the speed of sound. They're going to take off. Like yeah, crazy. yeah. Well, I, I mean, I was sort of imagining this at first in some kind of like a, you're in a, a... How about a space suit? Yeah, or a space... Uh, like you are... It, I was thinking about like a spaceship where the, the air is evacuated and you're floating around in it, you know, but it's... But yeah. Okay. Okay. So what about the... Okay, the breathing the breathing part. Let's get to the breathing part. Well, so my first thing is I, I assume no, because I... But I don't know what gases are in I don't fart. think there's much I oxygen. I don't think there's much oxygen because all what's happening in your in your intestines is decomposition. And 
bacteria I, I are anaerobically breaking have, down the yeah i i don't think there's oxygen production happening there your body's trying to you're, you're not photosynthesizing you're not producing oxygen so if you're if you put out a bunch of gas that that um has no oxygen in it and you breathe it it's just going to displace oxygen in your lungs if it you know if it displaces co2 in your lungs it could make you feel like you no longer need to breathe um which is why why some of those gases can be so dangerous um because if you put in something else in place of the co2 your lungs feel less urgency and you 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 don't realize that you're that you're starting to black out god you just go right down the rabbit hole man just turn up to 11 that's so cool but you get you're a physics guy right and the old saying if everything happens for a reason the reason's usually physics but you get you get a lot of questions about energy and astrophysics right is mm -hmm. that because that's what you like yeah I or think, is that the kind of question you get um it's a little of both i i i like reading and writing about space stuff and i and i feel like a lot of people then who who people who are excited about space are you know, likely to send me questions. And I think there's just something appealing about really big stuff, you know, in the same way that like, I've, I've always been a giant fan of the movie Jurassic Park. And it's just, there's something, you know, dinosaurs are just inherently appealing because they're really big. Space and dinosaurs. Space and dinosaurs. In science yeah. education, we talk about it all the time. <laughs> you, your work has, I guess what we would call a spirit of generosity. You want people to know this stuff, right? I think one of your most famous XKCD strips is the one where you talk about, basically, instead of ridiculing people for not knowing things, celebrate the joy of being able to tell them about things, like the Mentos and, and, and Coke experiment, that if somebody doesn't know about it, don't say, what? You don't know about it? You say, hey, I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. Yeah, one thing that I've felt when I was doing my, uh, you know, my physics degree and learning about about this stuff, is you you end up surrounded by all these really smart people, um, and they're talking about these things that are really hard to understand, and and it can make anyone feel kind of insecure about like, do I know enough? Am I smart enough for this? And and one of the side effects that can have is it can make you want to prove yourself by not admitting when you don't know something or don't understand something, and then by sometimes when you see that someone else doesn't know something, jumping on them about it and being like, ha, huh, how do you, you see this person doesn't know about this? How do you not know about this? I know about this. And it's sort of a way, you know, it's, I think it comes out of an insecurity of wanting to reassure yourself that you belong. But, um, but the effect it has, you know, reassure yourself, I know what I'm talking about. It's this person who doesn't. But then it has the effect of making them more insecure. And then they're more likely to jump all over you if you don't know something. And it makes everyone just sort of reluctant to share when when they don't know something. And then we don't learn stuff from each other. Um, and so I really... Right, it seems like a chronic problem of science communication. Yeah, and so I try to really encourage people to to try to check that impulse to make fun of someone when they don't know something or to look down on them or make them feel stupid because you don't, you don't teach them to, if you make someone feel bad about not knowing something, it's not like you create an incentive for them to know more things. All you do is teach them to never try to admit to you when they have something they might learn, you know, when there's something they don't know. Um, and then you miss out on getting to tell them about the Yellowstone supervolcano or about the Diet Coke and Mentos thing. Uh, and, and you lose out on all the, all the fun. And your your work is nominally apolitical, right? I guess uh, I don't know. I I 
I try to do comics about what whatever I'm, you know, whatever I have something that I think is really uh, uh, fun or interesting to say about it. You know, so sometimes it touches on on political subjects, but you know, this this whole sort of obsession of you know experts and you know we don't believe experts; they're talking down to us. They're part of the deep state. It seems very adjacent to the idea that you were just describing of if people feel talked down to, that that becomes an impediment to understanding. And I think that's actually become like an active tool of political fighting is trying you know, is cultivating that idea that oh, the experts are talking down to you. Is there a way to fight back? It's sort of always good for for anyone in any position to try to to when they want to talk about something and explain something to try to do it more clearly, um, and and to you know with more sympathy and kindness and stuff. I and I also think sometimes sometimes scientists are busy and you know you can't expect them to be good at this or to be able to do this all the time. Um, you know, which is why, I mean, that's something that's, that's, I think, really helpful is having someone in a role like you, Bill, helping to kind of go between the people doing the science and the public and try to make these ideas clear and explain them. And well, so that's that, your business, too. Yeah, well, and, I, and, I, business, and, right? and so I think that it's good to be able to take a little bit of the load off of scientists, because I just feel really bad for the people who are working on climate change, and doing all these, like, incredibly careful, detailed, you know, projects where I'm going to try to estimate the contribution of the Pacific Decadal Association uh, 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 oscillation, oscillation to the yeah. to the the global temperature feedback you know system, and, and I'm going to spend my entire life just trying to nail down this one small component of this as precisely as possible, and then to to turn on the TV and see someone saying like, oh yeah, they don't know what they're talking about there. That's got to be frustrating. Um, yeah, let's go with frustrating, especially in the case of climate change. Now, here's another yeah. one for you. We're supposed to send people. The United States is supposed to send people back to the moon by 2024. Do you think that's possible in your uh, add it all up uh, rabbit hole, detailed physics way of thinking? Oh, gosh. I mean, it, it's, do we have to bring them back? Sending them one way is a lot easier. <laughs> oh, um, let's leave it there. I don't know. Let's I've, leave them there. I've, I've always, I, I mean, I think, I think with a lot of these things, it's, it's possible. Uh, is it a good idea? I don't really know. Um, a lava that, moat to keep ants out is possible. Is it a good idea? No. <laughs> um, Putting people back on the moon. I mean, that's, that's, that's a strong stance on lava moat. Putting it's, people it's a, back on yeah. the moon. I don't know. I, I know there's been the back and forth uh, between, you know, should we go to the moon? Should we go to Mars? Should we go to the moon as a stepping stone to Mars? Um, and that's something where it's sort of almost more of a social and political question than a scientific one. You know, we've we've got the rockets. We we can build a rocket. We can we can try to solve that problem. But like, we need to know which problem we're solving. Um, and and I know that um, you know your your colleague uh, Emily Lactawala has talked about the, the that kind of seesawing effect and how how she's worried about about just that we keep changing what our goal is every few years, every new administration, whatever. Then then we'll just never go anywhere at all. Um, I've always been a fan of the moon. Uh, as a destination, not necessarily for any, you know, particularly scientific reason. What what always appealed to me was there's a disappointing thing that that I at some point learned, which is that no matter how big wings you make, a person can't use their arms to fly, not on Earth's atmosphere, because we just weigh too much and our arms just don't have the power. Um, and that's really disappointing. And, you know, there are all these myths of people making wings and being able to fly, but it's not going to work. There's just no way around it. Arms aren't strong enough. 
But if you go up to the moon and you get an oxygen-filled dome or something, then a person could fly around under their own muscle power up there. And a person could, if you had a pool there, you could swim and you could jump out of the water like a dolphin. And I would love to see Olympics with, <laughs> with where you send Michael Phelps to the moon and, uh, and he... It, and they have like new swimming strokes where they're like <laughs> leaping out of the doing skipping like flying fish. I don't know that How seems cool like there's so much be? cool stuff like that in that low gravity. Science rules will be right back. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. You're listening to Science Rules. Wait, Bill, Bill, that sound, it's thunder. Thunder only happens yes, when it's lightning. Yes, the lightning round. Yes, yeah, uh-huh. so here's what we're going to do, Randall. We ask you a question. You just come up with an answer quickly, All electrically. Right. If you could live in the world of any famous comic strip, what would it be? Oh, there's a lot of them. I've always had a really uh, deep love for uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Um, mm-hmm. The long strips where they would just, you know, ride a wagon or a sled down all kinds of landscapes as they argue over something uh, – the backgrounds are always so lush there. It's, I feel like it was really the, the best comic strip of its generation, and I'd love to walk around those woods. What is the best what-if question you've ever been asked? There was one, uh, someone asked if they had a bullet with the density of a neutron star, and they shot it at the ground, what would happen? And, the, and that turned out not to be very interesting, but then I started thinking, what if you left it in the gun or just had it sitting there on a pedestal? Could you touch it? Or would the Earth just be sucked around it by gravity? And yeah, just... exactly. Well, and it turns out it, the Earth wouldn't be sucked around it by gravity, but you could get near it, but it would start pulling. The tidal forces would start pulling on your arm. Um, but it's it's <laughs> it's something where it it has unimaginably strong gravity, but it's not totally outside the realm of like physical understanding. So I realized that if you just took a hose and you like sprayed water at this thing the water would collect around it in a ball. But then when it got far enough away, it would sort of start falling off. And it, you'd end up with this sort of lava lamp shape of water. Just kind oh, of sitting Oh, God, how like cool rippling. is that? Nicely I done. I know, right? And I just like... But wait, you, you, require, a pe- you require a pedestal that can yeah. hold up a slug yeah, of neutron. Yeah, so you're going to need some kind of a magic matter. pedestal. But, 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 sure. um, but it only yeah. needs... You know, the neutron star weighs as much as a city block. Uh, the, the, the bullet would weigh as much as a city block. But that tells you that you only need a pedestal the size of a city block because city blocks are held up by those. So, <laughs> so there you go. Have you ever been sure. stumped? Has there ever been a question you can't reason your way to the end? Oh, absolutely. All the time. Um, um, there was one that I got where someone asked if they could uh, row a boat on a lake of superfluid helium. And it actually, I, I said, you know, I don't, I don't know. That's a weird quantum question. <laughs> I've, I don't know the answer to that. And I tried to think about it for a little bit, 
and eventually just gave up and said, no, this is this is beyond me. And it was a, a few years later, I was going to visit my old university and I talked to one of my physics professors and I mentioned this question to him. And he was like, oh, that's a good question. Let's, and he started thinking about it. And we, we, um, what's the, whole, we what's the, uh, spend a while what goes wrong? Well, the weird, like when you get helium, that's because super, cool, super fluid. Yeah. You end up with these, with all these weird quantum effects where like the, there's the effect where it'll like creep up and over the sides of containers yeah. and flow. And it does some things that are, that are kind of quantum behaviors, almost like, like teleportation, um, and so it's just very hard to intuitively think about, you know, if you don't work through the calculations. But then with the help of the professor, I made some progress. This is a lightning round. Doggone it. We went down a rabbit hole right there. <laughs> yes. Wait a second. So is the answer yes or no? <laughs> you could for a little bit. Done. <laughs> All right. If you could be doing anything else with your life, what would it be? Oh, man. I don't know. Um, I'd work on antennas. If everything were different and I stayed, and stayed an engineer, I would have worked on... Wait, what kind of antennas? Uh, big, small, whatever. Cell phone, uh, watch satellites, look for asteroids. I just think the mechanical thing with the invisible field is just cool as heck. Uh, that's me, though. Uh -huh. All right. What's your favorite field of science? Ooh, um, I'm a big fan of anything involving time. Horology. But, you know, really, this is... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good word. I've always really liked any kind of um, math, but probability, mm -hmm. the whole idea of uncertainty, you know, come, it comes up all over the place in science whenever you have like a sort of weird statistics idea, you know, or you need to analyze some data. Um, I've always really, really enjoyed any problem that involves probability because there are such simple questions like balls in a jar that you're going to draw out, but you can really quickly get to kind of unsolvable conundrums from very simple So pieces. speaking of which, what is the least understood field of science? Not just the unknowable, oh, I don't know. which field of science that we know the least about? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure that the deeper you go in any field, the more you realize, oh, hey, here's a thing this field doesn't actually understand. Like in physics, I always enjoy the things where I feel like I know a lot, you know, about compared to other fields, you know, I know a lot about physics since that's what I did a degree in. But then it makes me very aware of the simple questions that physics can't answer, like why uh, lightning happens. We're not sure. We're in the lightning round. We don't know why there's a lightning wow, round. Wow, just a yeah, minute. Like when, okay, what if we had a president <laughs> who was a scientist? Do you, would the world be better or would it be a mess? I mean, I, 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 like to, I like to say that'll be better, but I don't know. I think that, I think that being president, you can talk to a lot of scientists and get their help. I think that being a, being a president who enlists, who's good at enlisting the help of scientists, might be a better approach there. Because uh, uh, if if the, the my friends uh, are any indication, scientists have trouble uh, not going down those rabbit holes sometimes. Plus, it's a different. Scale. I feel like hey, the president needs to focus on a lot of a lot different of things. things. Yeah, per, especially personal relationship. Now, this is one yeah. you've heard about many, many times. This is a Facebook comment. What if? The theory about reality as we know it being only a computer simulation is proven to be true. Like, how would this change our lives and society? Like, could we be living in a simulation, man? Even though it was a Facebook question, he asked it in that voice. Yeah, it's he did. Amazing. I don't know. People, people, I feel like people, people bring up the simulation thing whenever something sort of weird or unexpected happens. And I've never been sure what to make of that exactly. Like, oh, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. We are clearly living in a simulation. 
But like, <laughs> clearly, are the people running the simulation really interested in the Chicago Cubs? And like, then the other idea that that's so troubling here? is your yeah. memories have been put there. You have no ideas of yeah. your own. They're only the memory of everything that's happened to you has been put there. So we have a saying in science, Zach, out there. You can't prove a negative. You cannot have a hypothesis that has no way to be proven wrong. The premise of the question said, like, what if it was proven? And that was the thing that that caught my attention, because what if it was proven we lived in a simulation? Okay, I'm excited. I'm interested in how that was proven. Did we find a (laughs) note? That's the interesting part. Did we look at space and see a note from (laughs) the simulation makers that are like, you are in simulation so-and-so of... Like, okay, is this note just to us? It's in English. Are there other planets with life? Are they in the same or simulation? Or is it the Are screeching obelisk right. is it just, from 2001? Yeah, exactly. Is, it written, is like, it written in every language? Yeah. Let me know how we proved it, and then I have a whole bunch more questions. I want to know more about this simulation. Okay, Randall, I, ha- I have to ask you one pet question of mine. If you could blow up the moon, would you? Uh, no, I like the moon. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Let me ask you this, yeah. though. Why did you write this book? I, I like showing people how, like, the tools of science can take questions that seem unanswerable and ideas that seem like, well, who knows if that would work, and actually let us answer them, even if they are kind of ridiculous questions. Because I feel like a lot of the time when I would be learning science, sometimes I get deep in some theoretical concept, and and I'm working through these equations. But like, I had I would always have a lot of trouble focusing if I didn't know why I wanted to know this. Like, what am I going to, what is this for? What does this idea do? Um, And I, so I always liked tying things back to real life problems. And so one of the fun things here is showing that even if your question is ridiculous, you can apply these tools and get an answer to it. And maybe the answer will be something surprising or helpful, but even if it's not, it's going to be something fun. And it was an exercise and it engages people who might not otherwise be doing science for, uh, for a living full time. This has just been cool. Thank you so much, Randall. Oh, thank you so much. Our guest today has been Randall Monroe, creator of the XKCD comic and author of the books What If, Thing Explainer, and most recently, How To. Thank you again, Randall, for joining us today to talk about visualizing science for non-experts. And Corey, remember, when it comes to the absurd what-if part of science, Science, science Rules. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and our very own Corey S. Powell. Casey Holford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martorana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Corey, Science Science Rules. Rules. Stitcher. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.